Welcome to A Manner of Speaking, a podcast about the world of business law. I'm Neil Schwartz, a business law lawyer at the full service law firm Nan Lawyers in Ottawa, Ontario. Thanks for joining me today. Let's get started. We have some very exciting guests today, and our topic is commercial leasing and the wonderful world of. I would like to welcome Jeff Daniels, not Jeff Daniels, Hollywood Jeff Daniels, but A-lister in Ottawa's real estate market, Jeff Daniels from Royal LePage. Jeff, do you want to say a quick hello and tell the listeners a little bit about you? Yeah, thanks very much, Neil. I'm pleased to be here. And yes, I appreciate the A-lister part. No, I'm not the celebrity. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I'm a commercial realtor. And for the better part of 14 years now, I've been working with Ottawa commercial tenants to help them find new and great spaces or alternatively help them negotiate their lease renewals. Awesome. Perfect. So thanks for being here. And I also have my lovely colleague, Marina Abrasimov, who's with us. Marina, do you want to say hi? Sure. Uh, Thank you, Neil. So as you mentioned, I'm a lawyer working with you at at Man Lawyers. I'm a corporate and commercial lawyer. I provide business clients with a range of services, uh, including preparing and reviewing commercial leases. But I also set up businesses for clients. I assist with acquisitions and sales of businesses. I help franchisors and franchisees with their franchise documentation, and I provide assistance with a variety of other commercial contracts. And uh, I'm happy to be here and to speak with you today about commercial leasing. Awesome. Thanks, Marina. Appreciate it. So, Jeff, yesterday was the annual Ottawa Real Estate Forum. So, you know, real estate is certainly top of mind. And there was a lot of panelists there speaking a little bit about the latest commercial leasing trends and and what's happening in the development community and all things real estate, really. You've been helping landlords and tenants for for quite some time. And I'm curious just to hear from you, coming out of COVID into this new normal, what are some of the trends you're seeing in the Ottawa area across the various asset classes? It's a big question. And I think... um... Before diving in, as I think we all know, Ottawa is one of those cities where it's spread across a, a vast geography. So we've got lots of different submarkets. But overall, um, it's still a weird time, I think. Um, <laughs> we're, starting, we're starting to see some trends, but we don't have a lot of data because the behavior has been disrupted by the pandemic. So, you know, whether it's people occupying office space or um, shopping and then even distribution and warehouse, there's still some kind of ebb and flow there in terms of the way it's going to play out. Generally speaking, the office market has held up fairly well in Ottawa. The vacancy is roughly 10%. That's nothing extreme compared to what it has been in the past. That being said, it's been ticking upward. And I think the general consensus is that a lot of tenants are redefining the way they work and the way they use office space. And the expectation is there's going to be probably more and more space coming back to the market as people adopt more of a hybrid work approach. The industrial class is a different asset category entirely where the vacancy is quite low. It's low across Canada. And there just simply isn't enough options for people, um, a lot of whom have kind of left brick and mortar uh, storefront or at least reduced the footprint and gone to uh, places where they need distribution and warehousing. And so, so the demand is high there. The rents are as high as they've ever been. And then you've got retail. It's held up fairly well, but it, it's a different story depending on the nature of retail. 
uh, be it experience-based versus something that can be replaced online, and also where you are in the city, like regional malls uh, versus something you would get in a smaller community strip plaza. So it's all over the map. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's definitely some trends shaping up that will influence leasing decisions for sure. Yeah. One thing that came up recently was this discussion around industrial space being really tight. And I, I thought that was interesting. You know, we do leasing in, in all of the different asset classes, but maybe maybe industrial is not the most common. And I was trying to figure out why industrial is so tight. You alluded to the fact that retailers and distributors have changed their model and they've reduced retail footprint and moved to more of a wholesale or you know ship to consumer model and just need warehousing to support the supply chain. But is that the full story or is it a combination of you know historic undersupply or obsolescence of certain buildings? Are there other factors that have sort of led to the pressure? Yeah, it's a combination of the two. I think the lack of, of supply over the years is finally catching up, number one. Mm-hmm. And then obsolescence is a big part of it as well. It's newer, more modern facilities that you're seeing being constructed. The ceiling height is very different. Um, column spacing is different. Uh, the expectations of transport, uh, ingress, egress is different. So buildings evolve and change, and we just have been undersupplied with it here in Ottawa. And as a result, when there was a spike in demand, um, we just didn't have the space to accommodate it. And it's being reflected in the rents. Right. Makes sense. And so everything is just coming to a head now. I can't help but notice that on the heels of COVID, and maybe you see this too, I think there's sensitivity amongst landlords and tenants with respect to the full leasing process right now. Everybody understands that COVID was so harsh to so many different people on on both sides of the ledger. And, And of course, landlords had to step up and try and support their tenants in a tough environment and tenants in many cases were closed from doing business altogether and 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 their lease was uh, their most difficult obligation to honor. I think that's kind of led to an interesting environment where we're negotiating between the two sides has turned into a little bit of a, of a different dance right now and, and uh, you know I'm, I'm I'm mindful that negotiating power between tenants and landlords has always you know, been a feature of this space, but um, I'm just wondering, and I'll throw this out to both of you, um, ha- has the landscape changed a little bit uh, com- coming off of COVID in terms of, you know, the tenor of negotiations or the willingness to see compromise from tenants and landlords? It's a great question. Um, I think in, in general, when there's not a lot of certainty, there's always concern on either side's making commitments. And there's been some other factors that have made negotiations challenging, one of those being construction costs and the the length of commitment people are willing to to make after an event like we went through and our guests are going through with the pandemic. So that's that's kind of changed things. And I think there's there's been a bit of a gap really uh, between tenants' expectations and landlords' expectations. I think that's starting to shift. And as time passes, we're People are more aware of what's happening in each of the asset classes. I think, you know, those parties we brought closer together. You know, for example, there's going to be office space and options available for tenants, but your experience is going to be very different, as is your leverage to negotiate if you're looking for industrial space. I think both sides are coming to that conclusion. Certainly, if they go to market and look for options, 
you know, we have office options, which are at this point somewhat plentiful compared to <laughs> industrial, where it's a very short list if you've got a client looking for, you know, warehouse space. So I, I think there's been a gap. I think that's closing because we're getting a better perspective on what's happening in each of the asset classes. But in general, uh, and, and maybe Marina, I don't know if you're seeing this in your work, but it's harder to negotiate. Um, I'm finding everything is taking longer. Yeah, I, I from my experience, just over uh, the past year or so, I haven't noticed uh, as much changes. Um, but you know, clients come to me when they already have some sort of understanding or agreement with the landlord as to the basic terms. So you probably, uh, Jeff, uh, are able to comment on that better from the perspective of like before the lease comes to me for review, what happens in terms of uh, the negotiating power between the tenant and the landlord? Yeah, I think I think that is sometimes the case if you've got a realtor involved in the process early. A lot of that can be simplified when it hits sort of legal counsel's desk. But I think there is a gap. And I think, you know, it's our job as lawyers, but as as realtors and as part of the overall team that's supporting a tenant or landlord to try and negotiate and narrow that gap so that when we start drafting, we're a bit more streamlined and, and leaving less to figure out in the back end. And in that sense, Jeff, maybe in your own words, what what is the the role of a commercial realtor such as yourself? How do you help make the process more streamlined and more efficient for your clients? Well, I mean, identifying leasing options is one part of it. And and part of that is understanding what those those business needs of a client are going to be and you know how they manifest themselves in space and location, et cetera. But I think getting to the actual call it papering of the transaction. I view it as a commercial realtor's role, especially in the leasing business, to try to orchestrate as much competition for a client as possible. So the idea being that by the time the business terms arrive on on your desk or Marina's desk, I've established enough leverage and left you enough room so that you're still able to negotiate, if that makes sense. And so Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's from the finding options. It's it's really getting the best deal financially, but also making sure that you maintain enough leverage that you can really address the details of of the documentation, be it through an offer and then or a letter of intent, and then on to the lease itself. Right. That that makes sense, and I think I think that is helpful to have some flexibility and room to move on various points as the fine print gets formalized. Marina, in your practice, you know, you've done a lot of leasing and seen deals come in different shapes and sizes. To the listener, what's the role of of legal counsel in the in the leasing scenario? What kind of value can you provide and what are the things that you're most focused on when a transaction comes across your desk? Right. So, I mean, it's important to retain a commercial leasing lawyer when either preparing or reviewing a lease. So if you as landlord or tenant are responsible for preparing a lease, it's really important to draft the lease in such a way that it's enforceable and that the lease would be clear. So any ambiguities or inconsistencies or missing provisions could lead to disputes down the line. Uh, which may involve significant cost and uh, be time consuming. So it's to everyone's interest to avoid that and draft the lease properly. 
And if you're a tenant, for example, and you've been provided with a commercial lease for your review, a leasing lawyer will help you understand exactly what you're getting into. So the terms of a lease are often very technical and could be difficult to understand for someone who's who doesn't look at leases <laughs> all day long. Um, and a lawyer can explain the terms of the lease and their significance in plain language. So I think that's the role of a lawyer is to explain and draft the agreement as the parties intend. Right. Yeah, I think that makes good sense. And and I think, you know, an emphasis on clarifying deal points, making sure everything's understood and both parties are on the same plane in terms of expectations is a big part of what we do. To get to that end goal, in some files, you'll see, you know, formal offers to lease prepared and and often those sort of move the yardsticks quite a bit in terms of clarifying what's happening with a particular deal. Do you find it's helpful to have that kind of documentation in advance or can it be sometimes more more cumbersome and, and result in, in more drafting? I'm kind of wondering about sort of the pros and cons of using an offer to lease as an interim step before a, a main agreement. I guess I'll throw that out to both of you. I mean, an offer to lease, maybe I'll just explain what that is first in case our listeners are not familiar with it. So an offer to lease is a short agreement. It's usually a couple of pages long and it sets out the key terms of the lease. So for example, how long the lease term will be, what the rent is going to be, the size and the location of the premises and any specific rights, um, for example, parking rights or uh, early termination rights. It's often used when the standard form of lease is quite lengthy. So the, the benefit of an offer to lease would be that the landlord and tenant do not start negotiating the form of lease itself, which can be lengthy and um, costly until the parties actually agree on some key terms. So if there's no agreement on the key terms, then there's no need to incur the expense of proceeding with a full review and negotiation of the lease. The downside, of course, is the additional cost because now you have to review and negotiate two documents. One is the offer to lease and then the other one is the lease itself. So, I mean, often when the form of lease is rather short, there may not need to, like there may not be a need to go through the expense of preparing an additional offer to lease. Right. So it can streamline where it's a complicated deal. It may be unnecessary where it's not going to be an unduly complex transaction, but it can often set the table for the parties to know whether or not they've even got sort of fundamental agreement. That makes sense. Jeff, are you... um are you a proponent uh, one way or another, or is it kind of case by case? A lot of times it's case by case, but more often than not, I rely on an offer document. That being said, whenever we put together an offer, I mean, I, I don't pretend to play lawyer. <laughs> I've been doing yes, this do. long enough. <laughs> <laughs> I've been doing this long enough to know better. Um, so if there's an offer negotiated up front and we're able to reach key business terms, anything is conditional. Uh, sorry, any lease uh, would be conditional on review from a lawyer. Uh, right. So my goal there is always to make sure that when something arrives to you, Neil, or you, Marina, that you still have the room to, to work and review things properly on behalf of your clients so you don't feel handcuffed. Because that's the other way things can go too with you've committed to a document that you haven't even read, which more times uh, than not, that's the way a, a landlord's offer would read. Right. 
that makes sense as well. And I think, but I, I don't think you're giving yourself enough credit, you, you know, in dealing with your clients, you know, I'll often draft something and then they'll say, well, has Jeff reviewed it? So I think you play a lawyer <laughs> just fine and you've got everybody convinced you're a legal authority and uh, good on you. Good on you. Um, so in taking it sort of a little bit kind of further in terms of looking at case by case, you know, we see, we see deals across all of the asset classes that have slightly different structures. And so they require slightly different or, or drastically different paper to support them. And I think one of the things I've noticed coming out of the pandemic is that the structure for rent has become maybe increasingly creative. And I'm seeing a, a more you know diverse set of provisions or deal points that deal with you know, net rents, gross rents, percentage rents, all kinds of uh, flexible or contingent structures where parties are trying to anticipate, you know, future unknown events like the one we've just come through. So I thought it might be helpful to the listeners to take a, a few minutes just to talk about the different types of rent structures that we would commonly see. And, and Jeff, maybe you can, you can kind of kick off uh, what are the more common ones that you know you would typically see in a commercial deal? So most common in Ottawa would be what we would call a net lease. Um, sometimes it's referred to as a triple net lease, um, and that's the way the rent would be structured in such that there's almost two components. There's one component that would encompass the, call it the income to the landlord, what they would collect. And then there's another portion um, which would cover the uh, share of real estate taxes operating expenses and utilities. But it can be um, structured in a variety of ways, depending on who pays for what expenses. Um, On a net lease that's triple net, typically in an office building, you'll see the net component being the rent. And then it's net of the three kind of key areas being real estate taxes, operating expenses, and utilities. That'll change, though, as you move to a different asset class, for example, to industrial, where you might Mm -hmm. be responsible for paying for some operating costs directly uh, as a tenant uh, and definitely your utilities. And then in retail, the same thing. So there's different forms. And and to complicate things even further, um, Mm -hmm. hence the importance of of lawyers, is that uh, these terms tend to be used interchangeably depending on what landlords you'd speak to. Um, and what marketing materials you look at. But ultimately, there's either going to be a net lease uh, or there's going to be a gross lease. Gross really being all the operating expenses and that net rent wrapped into one and a lump sum uh, is charged for the use of the space. Uh, Those are the two predominant forms of lease structure. You tend to see net leases far more often Gross type leases where everything's rolled into one payment uh, are usually with smaller buildings uh, and smaller landlords from my experience. Right. Makes sense. And Marina, when you're uh, reviewing contracts and leases and and taking clients through this, are these concepts typically understood? Do you need to explain them? Are they presented in consistent ways? If a landlord, for instance, is providing its form of lease, are they typically delineated the way Jeff's indicated, or do they kind of come in all shapes and sizes? It really depends on the landlord and the tenant. Um, it's, 
the bigger landlords have a very good form of lease typically that explain it very clearly. Um, mm-hmm. The landlords that are smaller tend to have not as well written leases. Um, so there are leases that do not make the rent structure very clear or that are silent on whether it's a lease that is net or gross, which could lead to disputes down the line. I recently had a lease that I worked on that was not clear. And that was one of the points that we raised with the landlord is that um, it needs to be clear that this is a net lease or a gross lease. Um, and when it's not clear as to who's paying what expenses, that definitely can raise issues down the line. And sometimes the intention is that the lease is not purely net or purely gross, that there could be a combination. So it's called basic rent. So the basic rent is stated to be a certain X amount of dollars per month, where say utilities are included, but the property taxes would be paid in addition to that but it's not really clear from the wording of the lease and that's a problem. So the lease needs to be very clear as to what the tenant is paying for. Right. That makes sense. So there's a, there's a spectrum, you know, between a net and a gross lease and, you know, you may be at one extreme or the other, and it may be well done if, if you're dealing with a sophisticated landlord, that's got clear documentation, but more often than not, it's not crystal clear. And part of our role is to make sure that, you know, if we don't get anything else right, let the tenant at least know how much rent they're paying, right? That should be, if nothing else is clear, let that be clear, how much is due on the first of the month. So point taken, those provisions need to be reviewed really carefully. One thing I wanted to ask you both in terms of just sort of lease clauses and the negotiation process is what what are the deal points that seem to crop up the most in terms of uh, the back and forth or or maybe like pain points in terms of getting something done. And I know maybe this answer is a little different than it would have been pre-pandemic, but you know, I'm wondering what what are the what are the causes you're spending maybe more time on now than than you would have before? And there's other considerations. Jeff, I think you, you know, just to kickstart, you know, the concept of hybrid work and and the use of space altogether has changed quite a bit. And I'm just wondering, how does that play into uh, your conversations with tenants and landlords? Well, yeah, at the outset of our conversation, I, I was mentioning the uncertainty that still exists. And for a lot of um, office tenants, as an example, going back to their spaces and trying a new form of work, um, there's not a lot of data points. And so there's an understanding that there needs to be some flexibility uh, with the space how the people use the space and the expectations of their teams. But I feel like that's filtering all the way down to the actual agreement Um, because in leasing, you know, the typical arrangement is uh, or commitment is five years. Um, Mm -hmm. It's that's a long time for a lot of organizations, especially given what we've just been through. And so I would say there's, there's greater emphasis on some flexibility and, and the world of leasing that I deal with on my end and the offer side that tends to be, options um, or rights to expand a space, to contract, uh, to terminate a lease. And so for me, during the offer process, and sometimes even before that, during um, our request for proposal from a landlord, I try to address those right away to see if a landlord is willing to have provide some flexibility in that way. Um, Because I think more and more tenants are, are going to be looking for that. Uh, from the way that the called the deal is structured, um, 
The key thing, obviously, is getting a commitment to those clauses, but then negotiating the, the wording. Because as you and Marina know, you know very well, mm-hmm. the devil's in the details, and you know notice periods and the way um, these clauses are structured can make it very difficult to the point where having the right is is really not that great a benefit after all. Right. So that, that makes sense because we've come through uncertainty and what the next few years hold is anybody's guess. Like tenants are, are looking to build in flexibility and sort of options with respect to how they can use or acquire or dispose of space in the, in the next, you know, short to medium term. But what about, what about the landlord? Is there flexibility? or considerations that are important on that side that maybe we weren't seeing before, or is it all really being tenant-driven? Well, for my end, most of my work is with with tenants. Okay. Um, and so I, I'm approaching it from that frame of mind, um, where uh, as you know, representing a tenant, this is what we're looking for. Um, now, landlords obviously would rather have certainty mm-hmm. sure. <laughs> than, than allow for <laughs> flexibility. And some of the ability to negotiate any sort of flexibility comes with how much space there really is available. The supply influences things. So an office space, an increase in vacancy will give a tenant more power to negotiate these type of things. And and it's certainly top of mind with a lot of my clients that I'm talking to. From the landlord's perspective, I'm guessing, you know, that they could restrict that as much as possible because certainty and knowing someone's going to be there paying rent for X number of years is is really what you want to maintain the value of your of your asset. Right. That, okay. So on the landlord side, the calculus remains the same. You you kind of leverage the market conditions. You're looking to secure a strong covenant for as long as humanly possible, and and have certainty in cash flows. So nothing nothing really earth shattering on on that side. Marina, how about how about you? Are there are there things that have come up that are important to tenants? Sort of now coming through the pandemic that maybe we're not so focal before. I know we've talked about, you know, um, the ability to sublease and and sort of parking entitlements and, and operating costs. Those are always important ones, but are they more prevalent now? I definitely, well, I'm trying to think about the previous couple of files that I've done. I've definitely had uh, tenants insist on um, trying to craft a subleasing or assignment clause very carefully and very well so that they are able to sublease um, the premises if they need to. And just to make sure that the landlord cannot just uh, arbitrarily refuse the um, request to sublease and what kind of new tenant can they sublease to. So I definitely saw some uh, some action on that front, on the sublease uh, front. I've also had tenants asking about early termination rights, and it's kind of echoing what Jeff said, that they want flexibility to, to be able to terminate the lease early. I don't see any appetite on the landlord's side to entertain those options, <laughs> those rights uh, often. <laughs> right. um, as you mentioned, they, they do want to know that someone's going to going to occupy the premises for a set period of time. Yeah, that that's what I'm seeing mostly. Yeah, so that sounds like it ties in with what Jeff was talking about flexibility, you know, the ability to sublease is is an extension of having flexibility to dispose of of space if you no longer need it or you're no longer able to use it. You know, parking and and hybrid work arrangements are all a result of sort of the new normal, so 
that makes sense. And I think we're going to continue to see this evolve a little bit. I'm not sure things have really quite settled down in the, in the office and retail space. And so it's going to be, I think, another interesting year or two before we, we get back to any kind of pattern of consistency. But I, I, you know, I appreciate both of your, your insights. You're both experts in what you do and you bring a lot of uh, value to the process for clients on both sides of a transaction. So I just want to take a minute and thank you, Jeff and Marina, for your time today and for joining me. I think uh, you provide a lot of value to uh, the listeners and uh, I look forward to working with you both on, on deals going forward. Thank you, Neil. Yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining me, Neil Schwartz, for this episode of The Manner of Speaking. For more information on our business law practice or our other practice areas, visit our website, manlawyers.com, or follow us on Instagram or Twitter at manlawyers.